loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Xander Masser. Xander is the author of the narrative photography book, Unburying My Father. He's also an occupational therapist, husband, father, and musician. Xander's father, Randy, contracted HIV from using contaminated blood products to treat his bleeding disorder and died in the year 2000 from AIDS-related illnesses. 20 years later, Xander unburied 10,000 slides from Randy's career as a professional photographer, which prompted him to dig deeper into his father's life. What started as a photography project evolved into a transformative exploration of living with and healing from grief. Since funding his book with a successful Kickstarter campaign, Xander has delivered talks and workshops around the U.S., Canada, and virtually. You can see his work at Randy Masser Photo or Instagram at Xander Masser. Welcome, Xander. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to have you. And I, of course, have to start by saying uh, that I regret people can't see the photographs in the book. Uh, it's, It's so, so beautiful. And, of course, I'm very um, moved by um, the grief underpinning of it, that you're telling your father's story, your story, through his photographs. It's very moving to me. Well, thanks for saying that. And, and um, yeah, you know, it's, it's one thing to see beautiful art um, and it makes it even that much more impactful when, you know, viewers can know the backstory and all the, the layers that go into it. Absolutely. And I, I was thinking as I was, I was reading and looking, <laughs> I hope people will go look, uh, that the story of your father's in terms of being ill his whole life and being um, disabled basically by that. Um, I feel it shows in his photographs. Do you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. I think, um, I don't think I always knew that, um, but having gone through the process of creating this project um, and learning my dad's story, you know, And one of the things that prompted this whole project and one of the reasons it came out the way it did is that I spent so many years wanting to know more about my father. Um, and in retrospect, realizing I didn't, I didn't know that much until, you know, just mm. a few years ago when I, when I undertook this project. And so learning about him, learning about his illnesses and also his, his resilience um, really allowed me to appreciate his photos in a whole new way. And, you know, these are photos I grew up with. I've, I've seen them many times. They surrounded me my whole life on the walls of my home. Um, but yeah, you know, now, now that I know so much more and learned a lot about his life, um, I, I see them in a whole new different light. I was particularly struck by uh the, the period in his career where he was photographing the Alvin a- Ailey uh, dance troupe for a few reasons. One, he was a white man, right? Yep. <laughs> but they obviously trusted him deeply. And some of those images are very un- iconic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen them before. Mm-hmm. And that is a... He, he somehow captured the motion in stills, which which strikes me as interesting when his movement was limited. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm so glad you noticed that and picked up on it. Um, and I, I recently wrote um, another piece about my father for somebody else's project. And one of the things I write about is specifically those Alvin Ailey 
dancer photos and how the contrast between my father and the dancers, I think is what is one of the things that makes those photos so special and really makes them shine and shimmer and, and be unique. You know, my father was a short, you know, small man with atrophied legs, um, you know, very little muscle mass and a pot belly. And he couldn't bend his left knee. He walked with a limp, couldn't jump, um, you know, and, and here, here we're viewing these photos of these incredibly sculpted bodies flying across the stage and doing these mesmerizing things. And, and somehow there, that, that interaction between him and the dancers just, I think it really makes the, the photos pop and, and, you know, when, when you know the story behind the, the photographer, it really makes you realize that I think. Absolutely. And of course, you know, losses such as the loss of health that your, your father lived with his whole life. Um, it can lead to bitterness or it can lead to expansion, right? That's the human choice. Um, and, and so I'm, um, I'm struck that he did not avoid movement. I'm remembering the, the story you told, or actually someone else told it to you, and you included it about him taking care of the equipment for the, for the baseball club when he couldn't play. You know, was that, in your mind, a key feature to who he was, that he found a way to appreciate things he couldn't do? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know, some of the, it's, there's a theme in, in what I learned about him, which is that, you know, one, he participated as much as he could. So like when he was a kid, um, somebody else would run on the baseball team for him because he wasn't able to, or in high school, he managed the, 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 the basketball team or he'd keep the stats and, you know, um, just kind of like be the, the team manager. And when I was a kid, he was our town's little league equipment manager. And so he, he loved activity. He loved sports, um, but he really wasn't able to fully engage. And so um, he participated in the way that he, that, that he could, but on top of that, the way he participated was supporting others. And mm. I, you know, I think that's important to point out is that he, he enabled other people to do things he wasn't even able to, which I think is a selfless act. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though he wanted to to participate, he was um, you know really facilitating other people's enjoyment in life. Um, and you know, I think being on the sidelines and watching other people do things he couldn't do is just so naturally, you know, aligned with photography. I think he, mm, he absolutely he was a keen observer from the beginning because he didn't have a choice. And, you know, I'm so glad he picked up photography because that just, you know, that happened right away. Those Alvin Ailey photos are from the very beginning of his career. That's, that's astounding, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm astounded by it yeah. for sure. Uh, maybe we can share a little bit from, from the book so that people get a sense of the kinds of, um, the kinds of stories that you that you collected as a result of doing this. Uh, I'm remembering a guest I had whose son had died, who said he, he just loved it because when other people would tell him stories because he couldn't have any more experiences with his son, but he kept adding memories Yeah, because people would, would tell it. And I got that, that sense in uh, the things you shared too, that you, got to know parts of him that having been 14, you wouldn't have known at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an amazing outcome of this project and something I didn't, you know, the, the whole process, the whole creative process unfolded very naturally. Um, but one of the outcomes of collecting stories and learning new stories and new information about my dad is that I've kind of created new memories, even though they're not all mine. Um, you know, I see a lot of myself in these memories. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, it's evolved my relationship with my father, which felt stagnant for, for a long time. Um, but now it's dynamic and 
you know, now, now he's more a part of my life because I've learned so much about him. And so we've, you know, 20, over 20 years later, after he's died, um, he's kind of got a new role in my life. And, and so, yeah, we've created new memories and, and new time, you know, we have, we now have new time together, which is really special. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm really glad for that outcome. You know, uh, I'll have you read that little bit about that your grandparents uh, told you in a minute. But uh, after my mother died, I was, you know, pretty old. <laughs> I realized I saw her in a different light after she died because I could see her sort of as a whole person a little uh, more, yeah. <laughs> not just as my mother. Uh, I knew the facts before, and it just occurs to me that you grew into that he's now an adult to you also your father but you know you you filled in the adult part who he was as a person in relationship to other adults yeah definitely and one of the things i i write in the reflection section of my book is you know i actually use that term whole person um and i use it in the context of you know some of the realizations and things I learned about my father made me angry. And I felt this kind of new anger towards him that I never thought I could feel. And mm. the point of that is that, you know, after he died, like I said, I was 14. I just kind of held on to this like idealized version of my dad. And, you know, he was so funny and he was like a universally loved character. He had this amazing personality and just everybody loved him. You know, he was a, he was a unique guy. Um, and in my mind, it was like this guy, you know, he died young. He didn't deserve to die. And he was my dad and could do no wrong. Mm. And, you know, after learning about the things that kind of made me angry, um, I actually feel comforted by that because, I now know him as a whole person and all whole people have faults and, you know, things that uh, they could have done better or, you know, none of us are perfect and he's not either. And so now I know him as a person. As a human. Yeah. He's a human being to me. Uh Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for that, even though it can come with a little bit of bitterness. Sure. Would you, would you mind sharing that little bit? Uh, with us? Yeah. So um, let me just pull it up here. Sorry. No problem. So this is from uh, page 280 of the book. For the first time in my life, I have identified anger that I now understand is directed towards my dad. I am angry at his silence and his reluctance to share his emotional struggle with me. But I am also comforted by this because I no longer hold on to an idealized version of my dad. I now know him as a whole person with flaws like anyone else. Even with this new view of him, he remains my hero. Because I know so much more about his story and my mother's, I'm able to meet them both with compassion, empathy, and understanding, even as I acknowledge my anger. As I came to understand my parents more fully, I consequently came to understand myself, which has healed me in powerful ways. The process of communicating this experience is exactly what I needed to do in order to redeem my past, heal my present, and move forward with a more open heart. I have sat with tears streaming down my face on most days that I've worked on this book, and I now understand how badly I needed to do that. You know, many, many times in my work, um, people come to work on their grief, especially if they were children when the loss happens or, or teenagers, way, way after the fact, right? We kind of have to get ready to do it, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, and, and you kind of happened into a way to do it at, at a time where it seems as if you were probably ready to do it. 
And I'm 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 also aware. Do do you have a young child? Am I right about that? I do. I have a 14 month old daughter. Because I think that's a that's an aspect too that um, you you know what it is to be a parent now, <laughs> and that's that's got to deepen your perception of him as well. Yeah, it totally has, and you know, much of the writing and creating of this book took place while my wife was pregnant and, you know, while she gave birth and, you know, I became a dad. So there's, um, there's definitely that whole other layer of, you know, what, what are the lessons I've learned, um, from doing this project from, you know, what I've learned about my father and how am I going to take that into my household and my family and, and to my children. And, um, yeah, you know, the timing was not deliberate. Um, it just kind of worked out that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm really glad it did because it's had a pretty profound impact on me. Uh, you know, it's um, I, I certainly continue to have a relationship with my first wife, uh, but not nearly as physically based <laughs> as you're able to do by looking at what he created in his lifetime. Um, and by I, I hear stories about her, of course, but you've you've now collected a record, uh, which which seems so powerful to me. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm very lucky that he was such a talented and prolific artist. Um, you know, he left behind so much for for me and for my family, and you know, I'm I'm and I'm just so grateful that I did something with it because mm-hmm. it could have, it could have stayed buried, you know, it could have stayed in those boxes in in my mom's basement and, you know, easily could have just sat there. And so um, I'm, I'm really, I'm feeling very grateful that, um, you know, I took the time and the energy to make something out of my father's legacy. And, you know, not everybody, gets left with such incredible art. Um, but I will say that everybody gets left with something. And mm-hmm. even if, yes. you know, the person you lose, or if any of your listeners, you know, have lost somebody, um, just because they are not a, an artist doesn't mean that there isn't something that you can do with whatever they've left behind, whether it be physical or not. Um, and that's one of the things I talk about in my grief workshop um, which is that, you know, you don't need to make a book, you don't need to publish or go public or whatever. Um, you know, a, a memorial art project can be as small as sharing with just one person. Um, but there's always something that can be done with, um, with somebody's legacy. And that's very gratifying. As, as you know, I know this show is directly related to that. Let's go to a break and then we'll come back. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Xander Masser, you can go to Randy, R-A-N-D-Y-M-A-S-S-E-R, masserphoto.com or find at Xander Masser on Instagram. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Xander Masser about his book, Unburying My Father. And what I'd like to talk a little bit about now, Xander, is that um, that you were telling me before we even went on the air um, that the time and space to do this project, which was massive, I mean, 10,000 slides to convert and all that, um, was largely able to happen in a kind of compressed time frame because of the pandemic. Um, because of COVID, but then I'm I'm aware that so much of the story also had to do with a pandemic, um, AIDS. Mm-hmm. Did did that affect you? The the um, I've been having deja vu, honestly, about that period of time. Uh, being being in the San Francisco Bay Area, of course, AIDS was uh, a very very huge impact on the community and still is actually um but did that did that um intersection affect you yeah yeah it absolutely did um so you're right in that uh, a lot of um the creating of this project took place during the pandemic and one of the aspects um really important crucial parts of this book and the story is that um, I took a lot of time to learn about the contaminated or tainted blood tragedy. Mm. So for listeners who are not familiar, um, in the late 70s, early 80s, the blood supply, which um, was used to create all sorts of treatments and medications for people, not only with bleeding disorders, but especially with bleeding disorders like my father had, uh, he had hemophilia. Um, was contaminated with HIV. And my dad was one of 10,000 people in the US alone who contracted HIV by using the medicine that he was prescribed um, to, to treat bleeding disorders. And, you know, only in retrospect doing this project did I realize, you know, after he died and before, uh, I just didn't know anything really about how this all went down, you know. When I was about 11, my parents sat my brother and me down and they told us about my dad's HIV status and they told us how he contracted it and that he had AIDS. Um, But that was about it. And um, nobody ever really helped me to fully understand the injustices around it. Mm. And so part of this project was um, learning about it and then kind of retelling it based on publicly available information. So when you read the book, there's a, a section called Tainted Blood. And, and you know, I was not um, around during the, maybe the height of the AIDS crisis, um, or I was very young. Um, but learning about it and reading all these research articles and newspaper articles, you know, allowed me to kind of step back in time a bit as I learned about you know, all the nonprofits, the government agencies, the pharmaceutical companies, all the players involved, at least in the the bleeding disorder community. Um, And, you know, at the same time, there's a pandemic and early stages of the pandemic. 
And the amount of times I just had to hear the term tested positive. Mm, yes. And, yes. you know, and all that goes with that. So getting tested, waiting to get your results, finding them out, not knowing exactly what that, you know, test result means, especially, you know, if it's positive and, you know, at the same time, I, I learned from my mother that she waited 10 years to get tested for HIV mm -hmm. after my dad was diagnosed because she just couldn't deal with that emotional. Too, too scared. Yeah. She was just yeah. too scared to even know. Um, but I didn't know that she waited 10 years and I didn't know that she lived in fear every single day up until that point. Um, but she just, she just couldn't bring herself to get tested. And so, you know, just learning about my family's history and then the, the more, you know, macro history of, of tainted blood and the AIDS crisis in bleeding disorders community. Yeah. It had a huge impact on me and just, you know, like I said, just this fear. Um, and before we even knew, you know, about COVID, you know, during the times of spraying down our boxes of crackers or, you know, whatever right. we were doing in the beginning, you know, it was very reminiscent of people not knowing how HIV was spread and being afraid of each other and judging each other about their decisions. Um, you know, like, and yes, absolutely. And of course, a huge aspect to that. And I've been having deja, deja vu lately because of monkeypox. Mm -hmm. There's there's this kind of message out there. Oh, don't worry about it. It's only men who have sex with men. Right. right. As if then it's no worry. <laughs> That's a huge number of people. But aside from that, it's also not true. Children are getting it. And, you know, people got it some other way, not sex. Yeah. And that 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 tendency to uh, section off people and not care about them to our peril, because, of course, germs are germs. After all, viruses are viruses. They're yeah. not, they don't discriminate. Um, so I was thinking a lot about that as I, as I read that section, you know, the, the activism it took in lots of different communities to get any help for that, uh, for that illness. And, um, you know, certainly yeah. affected lots of folks. For sure. And I'm, I'm glad you said the word activism because that was a whole other aspect of my dad's life that I learned about for this project was that he was an activist. Um, he, I learned that he was on the board of the Hemophilia Association of New York for over 20 years. Mm. Um, and, you know, as a kid, I, I kind of knew like he was associated with them, but, you know, he never talked about it. I didn't, I didn't know anything about his involvement, but as I was digging through old family documents and things and, you know, piecing together my family's story, I found um, like letters from New York state senators that were addressed to my father, um, you know, responding to his questions about where they stand on, you know, compensating families for, you know, th that were impacted the way our family was. And, you know, I, I just didn't know that he was, you know, that that was a, an important part of his life, but it, it clearly was. And, his activism and the activism of that community led to, you know, a, a bill being passed that did compensate um, families like my own. Um, not fairly, but it was something, you know. And, <laughs> right. Um, you know, nothing could could replace a human life. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, so he he was really involved with that, and I, I you know, it made me respect him for that. Um, that that he was, you know a really strong advocate and also that he, he counseled other families and he ran youth groups. He did all these things in the community that I didn't know about. And so I, mm. I, just, I love that about him. Yeah. I was thinking as I was reading too, just about the, because I work with cancer a lot and it's similar with cancer. Like you think a certain thing is hopeless and then something else is discovered that that treatment you're talking about didn't exist when he was born and then it helped and then it led to a terrible illness uh it's such an un 
unpredictable thing, um, ongoing chronic illness and treatment and, and all the rest of it. So I imagine your parents must have lived in a fairly uncertain state of mind a lot of the time, but it sounds as if you didn't really know that growing up, or at least not directly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, all of that is true. Um, you know, it's the, the great irony of, of the tainted blood tragedy is the, the thing that completely changed the lives of hemophiliacs ended up taking them down in, in huge numbers. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, and you're right. I did not really know about the, the challenges my family or my parents were going through, you know, my mom, you know, she knew my dad had hemophilia, obviously, when they met. And actually, I'll, I'll let the listeners know that the way they met, uh, which is a story in the book, is that my mom was in social work school, getting her master's degree, and they were, um, as part of the chronic illness class, uh, they visited a hemophilia treatment center, and my dad was the patient and had agreed to speak to the class about, you know, his kind of lived experience with the disease. And that's how they met. And so um, obviously my mom knew going into the, their relationship that he had a chronic illness. Um, and of course it took a much more devastating path than, than they could have, you know, ever predicted or imagined. Um, you know, when they told us about the fact that my dad had AIDS for my entire life, um, that was the last we ever spoke of it. It was the first and the last. And so mm. they told my brother and me, and then, you know, three, about three years went by the last three years of his life. It was never once mentioned. And that's one of the, the great reflections of my book is, is how detrimental I think that was for me and for my family and how, important it is for other families to have those types of conversations, uh, especially if they're opened up, you know? Yes. Um, and, and if, and if people have um, acquire some wisdom about how to talk about, cause both are true, right? You were, you were having a life, <laughs> a full mm -hmm. life as a family. And there was this thing happening that was very threatening. Both were true. Um, but it sounds as if your parents sort of, they felt they had to inform you, but then they didn't know what to do next. Yeah, exactly. The conversation should have continued and it could have. And I, I you know, I think there are, there are ways to speak to children about difficult things. There are ways to facilitate conversations. You know, one of the things I think which was a missed opportunity was, you know, I think a great way to facilitate that type of conversation would have been if my dad's care team had invited my family in to a session or, you know, to, to learn about my dad's care. Um, I think that's a great way to involve the family and, and open up a conversation. Um, and it really highlights, you know, and this is coming from my healthcare professional background that how crucial family relationships are to health. Um, oh, amen well, to that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if, if we were involved, I think, you know, I think my health would have been better after he died if we mm -hmm. were talking more as a family about it. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I say a lot uh, often on this show, probably at least once a month, that I've never had anyone come to therapy who says, you know, my parent died when I was young and everybody kept him, kept talking about him and talking about what happened and everything. No one comes saying that. They come saying they died and no one talked about it or they were sick and no one talked. It's the, it's the hiddenness that makes it difficult to yeah. grapple with um, because you don't have any way to do that. So I, um, I may be aired to the other side where we talked about it a lot all the time, <laughs> you know, as realistically as possible, but um, I, I'll take that mistake. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's very hard to find a balance and I'm sure that openly talking about these challenging things could have other detrimental impact. I, I don't know because I didn't experience that. What I do know is that, you know, my father's wish to stay positive and my parents wish to protect us took the form of silence around, you know, this, this challenging thing. And after he died, I totally took that on because that's what was modeled for me, which is that, mm. you know, we don't talk about this. And so I right. spent 20 years living a life, going to school, working, you know, having relationships with friends, you know, girlfriends, whatever. And, and basically, you know, having a world of people that knew nothing about what I went through. Mm. And that was really hard. You know, it, it, it didn't have to be that way. And it was, I always wanted to talk about it, but I just didn't know how I didn't have the language or the skills. And, you know, only as a result of this, do, of doing this project, did I figure out why I didn't, why I had no idea how, how to talk how about did, it. And I, I doubt that you learned how to talk about it only through the project. I'm sure you had to have support, um, people, people uh, affirming the legitimacy of talking about it or wanting to hear the, you know, what you had to say about it. Uh, your context must have been pretty open once you figured out you needed to do it. Yeah. And, and one of the ways I did that, um, which was kind of surprising for me, um, was the use of social media. Um, before I really went public about this project at all, I just started sharing a bit about, you know, the fact that my dad died, how he died, and some of the really, I started to be vulnerable on mm. social media. And I just found it really helpful, honestly. Um, I found it was easy, like, you know, just sitting and talking or telling or disclosing to somebody has always been hard. But I could go to my computer and think about what I wanted to say, edit it, write it out, put, you know, put a photo of my dad or a photo that he took, you know, that was a whole other aspect is just sharing his art. Right. Uh, but I could put it out there into the world and kind of step away from it and just let other people deal with it. You know, it was like, I've been dealing with this for 20 years. It's time for someone else to. <laughs> well, that. plus it gives you kind of a buffer zone, right? Yeah, you don't have to read the comments until you're ready to. Um, hopefully they were more, more positive than not. And there is a kind of built-in, I, I agree uh, with the implication of what you're saying, that there is a real use to social media. We know what's wrong with it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not minimizing that. But that in the grief field, it's really changed things because people talk about their dead people. Uh, just that is a huge, huge, huge change. Um, yeah. Let's take another break and we'll come back in a few minutes. Okay. Listeners, you can, you can go to my website at weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page. To find Xander Masser, you can go to randymasserphoto.com or find Xander Masser on Instagram. Back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Xander Masser about his beautiful photography book and story of his dad, Unburying My Father. And um, you were saying during the break, Xander, that you didn't get the whole picture because you were so young. That's so, uh, putting our parents in context is kind of one of the themes today, isn't it? That that you've learned so much about the context in which all that happened. And um, you were saying that you just thought people with hemophilia died of AIDS, you know, almost like it was one thing. Um, but of course, everybody didn't, did they? Not everyone got it and not everyone died. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's just, you know, it shows how little I really understood about the context. So there's the part where you were a kid, people didn't talk about it. Uh, it, it was kind of um, lack of information, all that. I, I have to think that probably affected your life in all kinds of different ways, plus and minus. And, uh, and then there's coming into a, a deeper realization about it all. But how do you think losing your father, living with a disabled father, the impact that had on your whole family. Did that form you in some ways that you can identify? Um, Yeah, I think so. Um, Firstly, well, I don't know, firstly, the first thing that pops into my head is that, uh, you know, by profession, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, and you know, for those who are not familiar, we help people who have any, any disability or barrier to life. Um, we help them function in life. Um, Mm. so whatever their functional goals are, um, we figure out if they can either improve their situation or adapt it. And, you know, I lived in a house with a father who walked with a cane he was very limited in terms of his mobility and his walking. Um, and at the same time, a father who had a vibrant self-employed career as an artist. And, you know, I think I'm inspired by that. Mm. Uh, and I actually am pretty sure my dad um, had occupational therapists at, at some point on his care team. Um, and so I think that informed my decision to, to pursue this profession um, I'm now forgetting, uh, the original question, but it, was it about how, um, you know, just, just, you know, I, I look at my children, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Sure. There are some ways that they are that, that I feel pretty darn certain relate to that experience. Uh-huh. 
um, you know, for instance, they're, they seem to be a safe zone for their friends when their friends experience loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something about them says, you can talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they didn't make the constant, they didn't tell all their friends, talk to me when bad things happen, but they have sort of that energy, you know, so that would be an example. How, can I ever say that's for sure why that's true? It could be because they have a mother who's a therapist, you know, but I feel it's a, it's a deep part of it. And so I just wondered if there are things like that, that would be an example. And you're, you're giving me one, which is you were drawn to a certain type of work and you can see looking back that that might have been influenced by uh, your own experiences with your father that you were sort of taking in viscerally. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to the example you just provided, which is that, um, you know, I, I think I am also a safe person for a lot of people. Um, and my mom is also a therapist. So <laughs> <laughs> we can't decide anything on that basis, can we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, you know, I think there's, there's like a second part to that. So one is like, yes, I think people who um, maybe have, gone through a trauma or some challenge do feel safe speaking to me. And that's because of what I went through and also because I'm a good listener. Um, But the second part of that, which also comes from, you know, some of the things I already talked about, which is that, you know, I, I do as far as, so I can take in other people's information, but I'm not very good at, um, I guess, sharing my story, sharing my information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can take in, but I can't really put out. And so I kind of like put up walls, I think, um, as far as like letting people know about me, you know, I know so much about other people, but a lot of people don't know that much about me. If that's, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And then you've, you've directly challenged that you You've put this book out in the world that's very vulnerable, very disclosing, and that there is that that um, safety of a little distance, right? But you're go- you're doing things like this. Yes. I mean, we're talking about some of the deepest things in your life, and I I find you available. You know, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're really talking. So something in there is is changing. I take it. Yeah, it, it totally has. And it's a direct result of this project. And that's, that's why I, t- I, I say that it's transformative. It's because I am able to talk about it now and I do want to share it. And I found a way to do it finally after all these years. And so the mm-hmm. challenge, you're saying, I'm, you know, I'm challenging that the way that I used to be, that's where the work is. And that's where the healing comes from, you know, the, you know, no, no amount of, no level of, of healing and transformation comes without challenging and without doing the work. And, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that for myself. Um, and it's, it's just been amazing. You know, I, I, if you, if you told me, if I went back in time a few years ago to my past self and said, in a few years, you're going to stand on a stage in front of 300 people and just cry about your dad, you know, telling your dad's story. I would have thought that, you know, I would say you're crazy. I would never do something. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, who would, who would say yes to that theoretically? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, not, that's not who I was at all. I just mm. was the opposite of that. And so, you know, it's the, I've, I've really come a long way in that sense. And the more I do it, the more I want to do it because, you know, I receive love in, in response and, and that feels really nice. Would you share the the part of your book about your dad's funeral? Sure. So this is page 238. My dad's funeral was attended by over 500 people. The room was over capacity. Many were standing in the aisles while others had to stand outside and listen. I was in the synagogue before the service began and before the masses of people arrived. Somebody asked me if I wanted to see my dad in the coffin. I said yes because I thought I was supposed to. 
I was not given any warning about how it would look or feel to do this. I touched his arm. It was a frigid and scary touch. His arm was so cold and still. He was wearing his Yankee hat and a suit, and he had a camera around his neck. He certainly looked like my dad. The image of his body in the coffin remains vivid and clear in my mind today. I can step back into that moment at any time, and my mind often carries me there unwillingly. The image is haunting and not at all comforting. Saying yes to seeing my dad's body in his coffin is undoubtedly the biggest regret of my life. Knowing what I know now, I would have chosen to stay with my dad in the hospital until he died. I would not have looked in his coffin. My final image would be of him holding hands with his family as he took his final breath. I'm so struck by that because it wasn't him, uh, you know, seeing your father dead that ended up imprinting. It was uh, seeing him erased a little bit. I guess I've I've been to open coffin funerals. It's not the person, but a person just after they died is. So I think that's a wise statement you're making that that it would have been a, a healing image to, to carry him in that moment with with all of you holding his holding him. I, I'm really struck by that. I know all your work is really going to benefit your children, Xander, and I, I want to thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you for saying that, and thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. You as well. You can find Xander Masser by going to randymasserphoto.com or Xander Masser on Instagram. Next week, I'll have Joelle Anthony other no, otherwise known as the grave woman, to talk about her work in the funeral industry. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.